This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponco Chicken. Ponco Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponco is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponco if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner. Uh, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out chasemonspodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by one of my favorite college football writers, thinkers. Been around the game for a long time. Hopefully, there is a game this fall. It's Ivan Mazale of ESPN.com. Ivan, good evening, sir. How are you doing? You know what um, a lot of it is, too, is I, I think I have a bias towards people that um, have a slow draw where there's something <laughs> about that. Um, this is why I think British people naturally come off as um, perhaps more thoughtful than uh, the average American, just because if you speak slowly and with intent, um, you will just come off uh, I don't know, more of a thinker, more of a, oh man, this person might be more of an introvert. They're thinking through everything in reality. That just might be the the way you talk. But my, my grandmother spoke the same way and extremely Southern and um, just very, it was just, it, it always came across as thoughtful because it was very slow, very, uh, I don't know. It, 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 maybe that's well, all it is, it. Ivan. Maybe that's all, maybe that's what I'm getting wrong here. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going 
grandmother, but I, I think they're giving away the secret of summoners for decades who, you know, northerners always think because they speak slowly or mentally slow, and uh, which is, of course, not the case. Uh, having married a woman from upstate New York, she has learned that just because and it took a long time for her for her to learn that just because I paused on what I'm saying doesn't mean I have completed speaking. So that's a, it, it's a tough lesson for them to learn. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it works. All that matters is whether or not it works. Um, I have to start here, Ivan. And I'm sure um, with the amount of people you've talked to, you're trying to, I mean, it changes every day. Um, and we only know it. We know we don't know. We don't know. But your gut right now, what do you think um, college football looks like this fall? I think uh, the picture I have in my head is, is somewhat akin, not exactly, but somewhat akin to wartime college football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just say that because with both world wars, some schools played, some didn't. Some of those that did play to play the abbreviated schedule. Uh, you know, we've had a rash of optimism in the last week. And I think what that is, is uh, schools were trying to get kids to commit on May 1st, because that's when high school seniors have to say yay or nay. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of, well, our intent is to play. But I don't know that the, you know, I don't know that in the last week when we had a lot of schools saying that, uh, that we had any rash of great news from the doctors and the scientists who are studying this thing. Uh, you know, and I think because of the uh, the, the nature of, of the way the virus is traveling around the country, some parts of the country are going to be healthier than others and are going to respond accordingly. So, which is a, a long way of, of answering a, a short question, but I, I think it's not going to be what we think of as a typical college football season. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I had um, the associate AD and SID at Colorado on earlier today, and we were talking about just the Pac-12 being um, in a different situation than perhaps the SEC like the SEC opening up and just with the cases and where they might be is going to be drastically different than where California might be in August. And then you see, well, maybe we move things up and you hear about schools contacting NFL teams about uh, places they can play in the dome when it gets cold. Um, but the general sentiment seems to be that so many of these programs can't just survive if college doesn't happen at some point in the next school year. Um, is that the sense that you get is that even if they have to push it up to October or sec- or spring semester, that no matter what, we're, we're going to make this happen one way or the other? Yeah, I think we'll see some fashion of college football. It just isn't going. I'm, I'm skeptical that it will be 130 teams playing 12 games mm-hmm. uh, beginning the Thursday before Labor Day. You know, I, I, I'm just extremely skeptical of that. Uh, I uh, am posting a story it may have posted by the time people hear this about the history of games being played in the winter and spring, which in the early days of college football, a lot of schools that we now recognize as big time 
college football programs, when they were first starting out, they played in March, they played in April, they played in February, and uh, not out of any sort of confusion about what time of the year it was, but it was programs were getting started, and this was when they could get a game. Uh, you know, so it, there is precedent. It's a very long time ago, but you know, I feel like whenever you play college football, especially given the now the lack of sporting events, whenever it does come back, be it October, December, or February, uh, people who feel comfortable enough to be in the in the stands safely will attend the games, and all of us, the rest of us, will watch them. Mm-hmm. It's just different because college just like there's all you know what I don't like Ivan is when you think you understand something and then somebody just completely torpedoes that perspective and you're just like okay so what is the what is the truth here and I the, the most recent example of this in college football is that like there was a disagreement I think it involved Darren Ravel and um, how much money um, college football needs from people at the gate and then there were people who disputed how much they actually how much of just the ticket revenue on Saturdays goes towards the athletic department like could college football survive a season of no fans or students in the stands kind of like the NFL where we saw this week that it'd be like a hundred million dollar per team loss, but ultimately they're still going to do it. College doesn't really work like that. Do you, do you get the sense that that just doesn't work like that? That what, what is the truth in terms of ticket revenue for college football? My suspicion, uh, and, I don't know, I don't have in front of me the percentage that the gate uh, is of the overall budget. Uh, My suspicion, Chase, is is that college football will survive whatever happens. It's the other sports that are funded by college football that we really need to be worried about. You know, I, I think of it as a big, fancy car. And, you know, how many of the extras on the car are you willing to... Uh, you know, if you can't afford them, you know, how basic a model are you going to have? And, and you know, the basic model is going to be college football because you got to have a car. It's just a question of whether you get cloth interior or leather. And how many of those sports uh, are going to survive? We've already begun to see schools uh, shedding programs, mostly men's programs, because of the Title IX uh, demands. Uh, I think uh, unless I, I think that's going to continue, uh, especially if we go, if we have the model where stadiums are not allowed to be filled to capacity for public health reasons, you know, say a Sanford stadium in Athens, uh, you know, yeah, we'll play, but we're only going to sell 30,000 tickets so that we can, people can socially distance. You know, I think that there is a blue sky of, of possibilities and scenarios, and I think that that one that wouldn't surprise me if we end up seeing. Well, let's get into some, some actual football questions. And something that I, I think I got wrong that uh, perhaps a lot of other college football uh, fans got wrong was how the Mac Brown experience would go at North Carolina especially yes. this early, but 
it, if you look at where they're at right now in 247 Sports recruiting and for 2021, like you look at them, you look at Tennessee, who I'll get to in a second, but are you stunned at what Mac Brown has been able to accomplish to this point at UNC? Did you see any of this coming? No, I, I actually feared I, I like Mac. Uh, who doesn't like Mac? Uh, but if you look at the history of second acts of coaches who late in their career uh, come out of retirement to coach again, it's the one loss records are not pretty. And you can, you know, there's any number of Hall of Fame coaches. You know, uh, Bill Walsh returning to Stanford in the 90s, Johnny Majors returning to Pitt in the late 90s. Uh, you know, there's just so many guys who, you know, they're going back because they want to be around young people again. And uh, But they, you know, they have more trouble connecting to young people because they're older and the game has changed. The game is continually evolving. Uh, so what Mac has done really is almost alchemy. You know, it's, it's uh, surprising in so many ways. I mean, he, you know, that team last year played really hard every game. They were in every game. Almost beat Clemson. Uh, <laughs> almost beat Clemson. You know, would have, could have, should have, but, you know, Nobody else almost beat Clemson. Uh, and, uh, you know, now he's killing it in recruiting. And that's just, I think it speaks in part to Mac's personality because Mac is a people person and recruiting is a people business. Uh, and I think he was out of it long enough that he felt rejuvenated and came in and, and acted rejuvenated. And, and that doesn't always happen either because, it is a grind, and at his age, you know, I'm sure he's made concessions that he, there are things he doesn't do that he did 20 years ago, but uh, whatever he's doing, it's working. It, it's one of those things where I wonder sometimes if we ever think stuff where it's just, because yeah, certain older coaches, when they come back, you're like, oh, they're going to be too grouchy, too jaded. They're not going to adjust because they're going to want you to evolve towards them and be out of touch, like you talk about, and that's why the, the win loss record is not pretty. But like when you think about Mac Brown's personality, and even Herm Edwards to an extent too, um, at the yes. college level where you're like, Oh, we overthought this. Like they're not at a high intense program. They're not being asked to win national titles. They're not asked to do any of that kind of just top five recruiting every year. And just what Georgia, the Alabama's, that kind of stuff is. And even Texas, like they're at a program that's just happy to like have some rejuvenation. They have the personalities that's kind of infectious. They have the, the situation where it, you could see how they could be good recruiters and they enjoy just being around young kids and that you could see it would not be about them bend, making the kids bend towards them. It's more about them bending towards the kids because that's what gives them the energy. So they're like these unicorns where actually they go the other way that maybe we'll see more of this. Do you think that's going to be a growing trend uh, for uh, uh, colleges where they're like, you know what, why not just take a chance on this, uh, this forgotten personality name that just, might be able to put t- together a super staff that uh, is a little infectious and brings new life into our program. Well, it, it will, if the, you know, Herb Edwards is also a people person, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it, I think it's got to be the right personality. And as you point out, it's got to be the school that has the right expectations. The Georgias and Alabamas and Texases aren't going to go that route because they don't have to. You know, they don't have to win the press conference. They don't have right. to get in a market where they've got to sell tickets. 
you know, Arizona State's in, a, in an NFL town. North Carolina college football is the second biggest sport on campus. So they, they've got to do something splashy. Uh, you know, that, uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that they are unique circumstances that allow those guys to succeed, some on their end and some on the school's end. But uh, I'd have to sit down and think about who else, you know, what other former coach, successful former coach is out there with that kind of personality. I guess we could just look on television. That's where they found Herm Edwards and and Mac Brown. I was going to throw Gene Chizik. You never know. Like, we just forget that he won a national title. He's a good D.C. He was at North Carolina briefly as a D.C. Like, it would not surprise me if he went somewhere else, like a small program, and just turned him around into, like, Herm Edwards, Mac Brown type deal. Like, I, I could see that, and based on what I can tell from his personality. Well, Gene's an interesting case. He, he is, uh, I think, once he got out of the coaching whirlwind, he kind of liked the pace of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once, perhaps when he's an empty nester, you know, he's still a pretty young guy. Once he, you know, once his kids are out of the house, and I can't remember how old they are at this point, uh, you know, maybe he would look again. But I think, uh, you know, he's one of those guys like, like uh, you know, we got to the top and kind of went, oh, is this all there is? And, and you know, kind of realized it, it was just, you know, it wasn't what he had had in his head. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know that. I've never talked to Gene about it. You know, that's just what strikes me about him. And, and, you know, there's some, there are guys out there, you know, Butch Davis has come in and done a nice job. Yeah. Uh, you know, at, um, at FIU and, you know, it's, uh, or FAU. Did I get that no, right? He's at FIU. Yeah. FAU was Lane yeah. Kiffin and now that's Willie Taggart. No, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. FIU. I, I, uh, let's not go down that road. But anyway, <laughs> you know, the, He's another, yeah, another example, and exactly as you said, a, a school that, that's not at that that upper level, but he found a place where he can work with kids, and and it what is winning. Yeah, it uh, it works. Um, speaking of Florida, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, Manny Diaz had a rough go of things um, in year one, taking it over Miami. The offense wasn't pretty. He moves on from Enos. He brings in Rhett Lashley, who I swear has been an offensive coordinator at every single school in the country now since leaving at, uh, yeah. Auburn. Like that guy, UConn, uh, just SMU. I, you, you pick a school, I'm going to assume that he was an OC at one point there, and he's still somehow only like 29 years old. But he's there now. He's tasked with fixing the Miami offense. Um, you have Derek King coming in. And then you have Florida State, where they've been down – there was a lot of stuff surrounding the Willie Taggart stuff. Like there's not signing a quarterback for years was weird. Now they have a lot of quarterbacks. Yeah. They have Purdy. They have, I mean, we'll see if James Blackman starts in this fall, but like everybody seems to agree that Norvell is doing a great job building out this program, building out the staff, fixing um, this Florida state program. That's just really been in disarray. Even the last couple of years of Jimbo Fisher's uh, tenure there where it just was getting pretty ugly. Um, yep. If you had to bet right now on what you're seeing from both programs, because I don't think there's a definite answer here, but I, I'm just very fascinated to see where these two programs go because they're both fighting to get back to what they were 15 to 20 years ago. 
And I'm not sure about either. Like, I, I guess I would lean no. Florida State at this point, but where would you lean? Well, I don't think either one will get back to where they were. Yeah. And uh, the reason I say that is because when Florida State and Miami were the king, you know, there were three FBS schools in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, now there are what? Uh, FIU, FAU, USF, and UCF. Yeah, yeah. UCF, thank you, seven. So, you know, and it's not so much that the, the starters at Florida State and Miami are still going to be, you know, that could be that level of starters, but it's it's the two deep and it's special teams. And those kids that were at Miami and Florida State and playing, you know, maybe 20, 25 snaps a game are now starting at UCF and yeah. USF and FIU and FAU. And that kind of depth is what makes a great team great over the ground of 12 games. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen uh, again. You know, maybe for one of the Florida, Florida State, Miami triumvirate a year, but but not. I don't think more than one. Yeah, um, and Florida just having the benefit of being in the SEC, I still think it's just going to continue to pay dividends for them. But I, I yeah, literally, I, it hundred percent. And I um I don't know. Dan Mullen's such an interesting case because like people love to make jokes about the people defecting from the program and um the transfer portal and all that kind of stuff with him but like that dude just wins he just wins a bunch yeah. of games he is that's why when he got rehired at florida i was like ah, there's no way he's bad like there's no way they go four and yeah. eight ever under dan mullen like i understand this line of thinking and why georgia was interested where it's just dan mullen's just as safe as you can get but then you wonder can he actually get over the hunt from safe of like 10 and two that Mark Rick zone year after year, or can he be someone who gets to the urban Meyer level where he can actually win a title or two and like really, really put Florida back on the map. And I think if you're looking over your shoulder at South Carolina, right? Or not South Carolina, uh, Tennessee, who's going to start only five stars on their offensive line this year. Like what Jeremy Pruitt's doing right now um, on the recruiting trail is just insane. And they're coming like Harrison Bailey is going to be under center at some point. Like they're, they're coming. And this year feels to me like a gigantic year for whether or not Dan Mullen can get over the hump. Cause we look at Georgia and all their changes, but like, I'm more interested to see if Kyle Trask can be the best quarterback in the sec, which is a possibility. And then what they do with it. Like, could they find themselves in the playoff? Because I just, this is such a tough conference and they're really close they're doing solid on the recruiting trail, not elite, elite, but solid. I, I just, I'm curious about what happens with Florida, but I think out of all the big three there, they're in the best shape. Is that a fair characterization oh, yeah. of Dan Mullen and Florida's future? Absolutely. And let's not forget, Chase, that you know, six years ago, Dan Mullen had Mississippi State at number one in the country. Which is uh, insane. You know, uh, which is insane. And it's still insane six years later. You know, he was winning eight to ten games regularly in Starkville. Uh, so Dan, yeah, he's hard. He's hard to play for. He's he's incredibly demanding. Uh, but Dan knows who he is, and you know, he, it's one of the favorite things any coach has ever said to me. You know, he uh, I asked him about being a guy from New England coming down to Starkville, and he was mm-hmm. describing. You know, the, the initial communication issues he had with people because he is direct and abrupt and 
and he laughed and shrugged and said, I'm an asshole. You know, and, <laughs> and, and laughed as he said it. And you know, he doesn't, uh, he, he's genuine, he's honest, he's direct, you know, and I think kids respond to that. Uh, you know, some of them may not like it, but, you know, there's no coach that is beloved by all 85 guys. So uh, I, I think Ben is going to keep Florida, you know, at the top of the SEC East. I, you know, it, it, it's only getting tougher as you describe what's going on in Knoxville and, and Georgia's Georgia now with Kirby. Uh, so, uh, you know, Kirby has not made that final step. He's gotten close. Uh, you know, Dan has not gotten quite quite where Kirby is, but uh, the, that division's a lot more interesting than it used to be. I'm going to put you on the spot here, and this is this makes Georgia fans uncomfortable. They're very they're very sensitive when it comes to Kirby Smart. But would you say that Dan Mullen's a better coach than Kirby Smart to this point? Would you say you would trust him more with any program? Because that's my perspective. Is like getting I don't know if Kirby could get Mississippi State number one. I really don't. I think he is an amazing recruiter. I, I just, I don't know. For some reason, I, I can't. I think Dan Mullen's just really good at doing a lot with not a lot. And I'm not sure Kirby would be as good as doing a lot with not a lot, if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, recruiting is as much a part of coaching as, as developing, yep. them, of course. And, and Kirby's better at recruiting than Dan. And yep. Dan, if you look at the record, is better at developing uh, or getting the most out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan's got more experience. That's a, that's a big plus. Kirby has had to, uh, you know, for better or worse, has had to learn on a, at a very prominent job. He's had to learn on the job. But, you know, the, all you can go by is the record. Uh, Dan has overachieved. And Kirby has, you know, he's achieved. He hasn't overachieved. You know, I, I'm not going to, sit here and tell you he's underachieved. He's, he's done uh, remarkably well uh, at Georgia. Um, you know, I, I, it, there is, you know, he has not yet gotten to that top level. And I don't mean just because they found a way to give away the Alabama game, you know, three years ago. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know he, his recruiting has been very, very good. Uh, in terms of February, but what we've seen on the field, not as, you know, not quite as much. You know, you know, what is that? You know, where does that come from? I'd have to sit down and think about it. You know, well, um, I think uh, this will be, uh, as you point out, this is going to be a really important year for him in terms of you know, Tennessee getting better, Florida climbing back. Um, I, I worry about Kirby in late game, you know, clock management situations. Uh, I still think he's got room to improve there, but you know, it's hard to argue with with the final one and loss record. And just the recruiting, like that's just we cannot yeah. understate just how important that is to any kind of power program. Like you want to be. Uh, just at the top of the food chain year after year you have to recruit at the top of the food chain and it's really hard it's a grind it's it's really really tough it's why a lot of those coaches are like yeah i'd rather go to the nfl now because i'm tired of dealing with this chip kelly was over it like he turned Oregon into a recruiting powerhouse and guess what he was like this is awful i i'm burnt out i don't want to do this anymore and kirby's just on a mission he's yeah he's new enough 
in the just the the head coach of a new program type deal where it's not wearing on him yet (laughs) where like let's look at it year seven when he's still putting together top three recruiting classes and like what that he feels about everything because i just i don't envy the position a lot of these big time coaches are in because it's just it's a grind just look at like what notre dame had to put up with for the five-star running back at clemson they put in all their like they just went hard and hard after this kid and didn't get him and it's a blow because they yeah. could have been turning their attention to a four-star running back somewhere else and that it's just yeah. it's amazing how that works and how just much of a gut punch it is when you don't get that player that you spent so much time chasing like it's recruiting's hard Recruiting's hard, but that's one, one thing you got to remember on Kirby is he, you know, he survived, what, nine seasons with Nick Saban? You know, he likes that pace. Yeah. He likes that grind. And uh, I don't think he's going to slow down uh, anytime soon. Uh, he's still, as coaches go, relatively young. Uh, I think he's got a, you know, there's a lot of tread on his tires. In that For sense. sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, how excited were, were you when you when you saw that Kansas Missouri was uh, getting the band back together? Well, I, I think it's great because I think every time one of those games occurs, it just makes Texas and Texas A and M look even dumber. Yeah, I can't believe yeah uh, why that's not back it, yet. Yeah, and you know they're all they're you know all they're doing is puffing out their chest at one another, and the rest of us are bored to tears. Just play the game; it's a football game. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, you know, it doesn't have any reflection on anything else but that. You owe it to the game. You owe it to the history and tradition of the rivalry. Play the game. You know, it's, it's, it's not that hard. Yeah, like have Colorado, Nebraska. Have I mean, we remember Chris Brown and that Colorado team running all over that Nebraska team. We remember Chase Daniel. And uh, I believe it was Todd Reesing in the number one, number two battle years ago with Mangino. Oh, yeah. Like, it was great. I remember it. It was awesome. Um, Even like little ones where it's just like West Virginia and Marshall not playing. What are you doing? Like, how does that even happen? Pitt, West West Virginia. Virginia, West Virginia and Pitt, the backyard brawl. Yeah, one of the great rivalries. Uh, one of the great regional rivalries in the history of the game, you know, going up. Yeah, and we've gotten used to some of that. You know, there's a whole generation now that, that doesn't know that Nebraska and Oklahoma used to be the biggest rivalry in the game. Mm-hmm. And, and we've, you know, we've moved on. And, and the same goes for the backyard brawl, I suppose. But in Texas and Texas A&M, come on. You know, that's just dumb. On leaving money on the table. There's nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when you're looking at non-Power 5 teams this year, has there been anyone that stands out to you that you're like, they have a chance of really making things interesting? Who is the, the best non-Power 5 school that uh, you're excited to watch this fall? Um, boy, that's a tough question. Uh, you know, with Norvell going to Tallahassee, you, know, you can't hide behind Memphis because they, you know, they were so much, they've been so much fun to watch. Uh, People seem to like Satterfield. Yeah. Satterfield, you know, Satterfield, yeah, you can't argue with this record and uh, the cupboard's not there. You know, I mean, they're, they're interesting from a curiosity standpoint in that regard. Uh, but I don't know. I, I'm, uh, 
you've you've unveiled the fact that it's May, and I haven't come, yet come to speak on the nine power fives. Well, you 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 have a great colleague who I, I love reading his non power five uh, preseason reviews, um, Bill Connolly. He does sure. such a great job of going through because he's the only reason I know of whether or not Georgia Southern's going to have a good defense this year. It's entirely Bill Connolly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't know. I think there's a couple teams like Memphis. I'm excited to see what Silverfield and like people forget like McIntyre is their DC now and like they're. I could see them maybe causing some some interest there. Um, Boise's replacing a lot, but we got to see if Hank is going to be healthy and what their situation looks like. Um, I don't know. I think uh, there's a couple that stand out. Maybe SMU. What can they build off what they're doing? Um, I don't know. They're, I am excited to see a lot of non-Power 5. I, I want Maction back. That's how starved I am for football content. Uh, Ivan is. Okay. I'm excited yeah. for action on week weekday nights. I miss it already. I'll say this, and, and you know, we talk about we started out the conversation talking about coaches and where they fit. Sonny Dykes at SMU is the classic definition of fit. Yep. And I, I think because of that, uh, SMU is going to be one of those teams in at that level of football that we look to every year with with high expectations. Yeah. Do you get the, how old do you know Bob Stoops? I know Bob pretty well. Now that the XFL is gone and he came back for that, do you think he, we see him again in college football? Do you think we see him in, at any type of level, even in like an AD or a coach or like, or do you think Bob's done? Because it seemed like he was done and then he was just the XFL Dallas coach. Do you, th- what do you get the sense of with Bob Stoops? I think it would have to be, the very perfect job for him. And, you know, it would have to be something on a level of Oklahoma. You know, he grew up in Ohio. It, it would have to be uh, Ohio State doesn't hire Ryan Day. They call Bob Stoops. It would have to be a USC if Clay Hilton goes south this year. Uh, but you don't read too much into the fact that he coached in the, in the XFL. I mean, I, uh, you know, Bob loved coaching in the XFL because you know it was a it was an eight to four job. Hmm. You know, and he didn't have to recruit. Uh, he didn't have to worry about whether the kids were going to class. He didn't have to worry about agents. He didn't have to worry about whether they were you know selling uh, you know bowl rings or, or access to game passes. He just was coaching ball. And uh, I think all that, you know, he will think long and hard before he takes all that on again. If you had to guess who gets a Power 5 job first, Brian Harson or Josh Heupel, who would you bet on? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say Harson, hmm. uh, just because of a longer, uh, slightly longer track record and a little, you know, an improving consistency. Interesting. Um, it's also too like it's hard to read on like how happy he is at Boise. Like he interviews and like there was some interest there with Washington and Washington State. Does he eventually move for a Pac-12 job? Does he do the Peterson thing, or do, is he really cool there and just wants to build a great program at 
uh, Boise forever because he doesn't want to go the Dan Hawkins route and spread his wings too much and then crash and burn. Like, I, I, I do wonder yeah. how much of that weighs on him. But Heupel, I just feel like with his recruiting and the way those offenses just work and he can just plug and play whoever is that quarterback that you're like, the dude's got a great recruiting base in Florida. I just one of these SEC or ACC teams are going to pick him up. And I just would not be surprised if Heupel is like one of the next coaching stars um, at one of these schools. Like I just, I would not be surprised. Uh, no, easy to make a case for him. Absolutely easy to make a case for him. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I just wanted in terms of for that level of a job, I want a guy that's got you know a little more experience at that level you know, or at whatever level, you know, than, push all my chips behind a guy like that. And, and you know, listen, you know, experience is not the be all and end all, you know, Bob Stoops walked into OU having never been a head coach yeah. and, and won a national championship in his second season. But you know, you gotta, you're going to go on. If you're an AD, you're going to go with your gut level. You know, if you're smart, you go with your gut instincts, but you also, uh, you know, experience is you know, is proof. Yeah. Where are you with the one-time transfer rule? Um, it's got put off for a little bit. Um, are you in favor of it? Um, do you think it eventually happens? What are What are your thoughts on the one-time transfer rule for players? I have uh, I have come around to being in favor of it. I've kind of just thrown up my hands and said, you know what, <laughs> let them do it. And I think you know, as we're seeing with basketball now, it's total chaos. And it's going to be total chaos for uh, a few years until they figure out what the right system should be. But, you know, open the doors, let everybody do whatever they want. Players will uh, find out it's not a panacea. Uh, coaches will figure out how best to handle it. And, and then we'll all move on. But uh, I'm not scared of it the way that, you know, I'm not, yeah, the way that everybody used to be. I think we all heard from the NCAA and, and from the AFCA, you know, oh, that's the boogeyman. You know, we can't do that. Well, you can do that. Uh, it, it just means you got your job's going to change a little bit. And, it, you know, nothing is uh, nothing is set in stone. And nothing like that, is, to my mind, is really going to affect the, the bedrock values of college football, you know. Uh, we're all going to still root for the laundry that we root for and, and for the reasons that we root for. And that's not going to change if kids can have a one-time transfer. Yeah, I agree. And I, the worst is when the coaches get involved. Like I, if I was a, just any kind of PR person for any of these schools, I'd be like the second Mike Gundy gets asked a question about this, just be like, text him immediately. Be like, Nope, Nope. Don't do it. I know what you're thinking. Don't start. Like, just don't go there because yeah, yeah, there's just a natural hypocrisy where these coaches, like what happened with Mel Tucker, just, I understand they backed the Brinks truck to get him to Michigan state, but he was saying, I want to be here long term, And I talked to people there and, just he was planning out to the 2030s at Colorado and then it's just gone. And I, well, it's just hard for, it it's just hard for people to, from the outside to look at that and go, how can you talk about these kids being punished for transferring schools? Um, while you can just bounce around for the best, just the, the best contract. Like I, I it's just not something you're never going to win that yeah. argument, right? Like the coaches will never win that no. argument. 
No, and they never, well, not never, rarely do they understand the value of, I'm not going to comment on that. Yes. No comment. You know, uh, I, I interviewed Kevin Warren, the new Big Ten commissioner, uh, a couple of days ago about mm-hmm. the new mental health initiatives. And I said, listen, you know, while I've got you on the phone, I said, I don't remember really reading, I don't remember reading anything you've said about what's going to happen in the fall. He said, that's because I haven't said anything. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I laughed. I said, oh, he said, I don't know what's going to happen in the fall. And I'm not smart enough to know what's going to happen or to make that decision at this point. I like this guy. There's smarter people than I am who are going to figure this out, and they're going to do that. And then the next 45 to 60 days, we'll have more info, and then the decision will be made. Yeah, God. I mean, that's all you have to say. But for some reason, people think when they're asked the question that they have to give an answer. Now, I'm I'm saying that to you, having just tried to pretend that I knew what was going to go on in the non-Power 5 schools (laughs) when I had no idea. So, you know. Well, I think it's human nature. It's human nature. And we want to speculate. We want to give our opinion. And I think a lot of it, too, is people mistake opinions for thinking out loud. Those are two separate things. And when you ask someone a question, like, just because, like, it it comes off as an opinion, like, they're not married to it. They're thinking out loud. Like, a lot of the people that jumped on Kirk for the just not – he couldn't see football being around in the fall. Like, he's thinking out loud in that interview. Like, he's just, like, with where everything is right now, it's hard for me to see it. There's nothing wrong with what he said. People are like, oh, it's the doom and gloom. How can you predict that? It's like he's not making a prediction. Like, it's not, (laughs) he's not a meteorologist. He's not predicting rain and just based on the forecast. Like, he is just thinking out loud. There's nothing wrong with that. And these people, it just, I don't like it. And this also goes back to your point of just like, no comment. Don't know. It's not going to be my call. I have no idea because there's no way. You're going to make people happy when you think out loud and you just speculate, um, even if you're not trying to do it in bad faith, which I don't think most are. Yeah. yeah. And Mel Tucker might have thought he was not he was not speaking in bad faith. I think he was just you know, saying what he would like. He thought people wanted to hear and pretending that you know it was all going to work out in the end. It just didn't. And, we, and that's the thing is we don't know. Only Mel Tucker knows. Yeah. And yeah. he, in his heart of hearts, he probably thought he was going to be there. And I also think that's how you have to be if you're a big time college. Like if you're at a job, you it's really hard. Like once you pull yourself out where you're like, oh, I might not be here, then it's hard to get back in. So I think you have to just go, nope, I'm going to be here and keep the faith until like you're like, I, I really can't do this anymore. Like I think that's part of it too is just... I, I don't, it's complicated. It turns out, Ivan, that life is complicated and human beings are complicated and there's always more to the story than than what we know. And I think there's... You need to hit the breaking there. news sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, it, uh, it's okay. Give people a break. We're all trying our best out there, Ivan. I think we can all agree on that. We're all trying our best. Um, last thing, and then we'll we'll wrap up here. Who's uh who's your favorite coach right now to talk to? Who do you enjoy being like? You know what? I need to talk to this guy right now. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I have developed. Uh, it took a long time and, and and a lot of tries on my part, but I now feel 
Like I can pretty much have a straight, honest conversation with Nick Saban uh, when mm. I call him, and I, I don't call him often because he's busy. Uh, but uh, I feel like I'm at I'm at that level with him. Uh, David Shaw, same way. Uh, Mac Brown, David Cutcliffe, same way. Kevin Steele at Auburn. Uh, I've known him 25 years. Uh, smart guy. You know, it's uh, a lot of the guys. Uh, uh, Danny Pierman and Woody McCorvey at Clemson. I've known almost 30 years. Kirk uh, uh, Ferentz at Iowa. I've known a long time. You know, that, you know, Pat Fitzgerald. You know, just the relationships I've developed from having done this for a long time. You know, if I need those guys and I trust their judgment and I know that they're going to speak to me honestly and, uh, and we go from there. There you go. Um, I lied. I have one more thing for you, Ivan. Something that I okay. wrote down that I saw. Um, you wrote to Bear Bryant when you were a kid, six years old, and he um, wrote you back. Yeah. What, did, what did Bear Bryant write to you? What, what, what was the note? Um, well, if you give me... 10 seconds. I can, it's about 15 feet from me. If you give me 10 seconds, I'll read it to you. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. This is, this is great. Okay. All right. Hold on a second. Okay. It says October... 18th, 1966. Okay. Mr. Ivan Mazel with my address in Mobile, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Dear Ivan, I certainly appreciated your note of October 17th. So the day before, mail worked fast in Alabama in those days, I guess. (laughs) Thanks so much for your interest and support of our team, period, paragraph. Best of luck in your schoolwork, period, sincerely. Paul Bryant. Now, uh, what are the odds that Paul Bryant actually wrote that and signed that? I hope that they're good. You know, I know later in his career, he, uh, you know, all kind of people were signing his name, but you know, that's what I got. That's pretty. I cool. would love to see the letter I wrote him when I was six years old, but that one, I guess, is lost. <laughs> I mean, it might not be. Saban might have it somewhere. He might be able to track it down for you. You never know. You should mention it. Be like, uh, go check the records. You got some pool at Alabama right now. See if he can uh, find The, the a... Bryant Museum, if anybody had it. I, I feel reasonably certain they probably don't. There you go. And you, I mean, you'd have to interrupt uh, Saban's oatmeal cream pie. Um, Little Debbie's. Yeah. He is, that's yeah. real, right? Like he's a big, he's into that. Oh, place. yeah. And and it is a creature of habit, so every day. It works for him, though. That's the same thing for lunch, too. He has a salad with some grilled chicken sliced on top of it. Interesting. He, he does uh, that every day. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had a number of lunches, and, you know, do you want to come around lunch? Sure. You know, and I show up, and I get the same thing, a salad <laughs> with grilled chicken across the top. And it's good. <laughs> I understand it though. I understand why people like that, where it's just he makes a billion decisions a day, and studies show that whenever you can cut down on some decision making, um, it helps. Especially people when you're building your own empire like that. Like I don't want to think about what I'm wearing and what I'm eating, and 
just well, I, I a great story about that. You know, they, they put in an incredible light show system in Tuscaloosa last season. Yeah. I mean, two guys in the athletic department go in to explain what it's going to be like mm-hmm. to Nick. You know, that at commercial breaks, you know, the stadium may go dark briefly and it's going to flash on and on and on and on. And he listened to them explain it and he, he looked at him and he said, well, I don't really understand what y'all just told me, but if I don't <laughs> like it, you'll hear about it. <laughs> Why would they do that? It's like, read the room. Did you really think Nick Saban well, concerns himself with any of that? He doesn't care. He's like, to but he doesn't like want it. to be surprised either. You know, True. They know that too. So they were covering their own behinds, but nonetheless, <laughs> that's, you know, to your point, you know, he didn't want to make a decision, but don't surprise him. <laughs> that's funny. And then you have the whole yeah. email thing that people were talking about. He, he, I, Nick just, it's hard to figure out how much he just is playing with the media versus he really is just only concerned with being the best football coach in, in the world. Like it's, it's hard to figure out when he's really messing with people with like how bad he is with technology and how much he doesn't know about certain things versus how much he just enjoys being that kind of, that kind of unknown figure that just doesn't concern himself with little things like that. It, it's, Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I wouldn't overread it. I think he doesn't really, you know, I, it's not an act. He's never I, playing it up. I, yeah. I, I would say this, I, you know, I didn't understand Nick for a long time. I've said this before. Somebody explained him to me and it, and it like cracked the code for me. You know, Nick views the world and he did it more when he got to Alabama than which I'll get to in a minute, but Nick views the world through the lens of, can this help me win a football game? Mm-hmm. And if it can, he'll do it. If it can't, he doesn't have time for it. Now, having said that, I think age, uh, success, I think the tornado, I think grandchildren, he, he now sees he's, his perspective has changed and he now understands a lot, you know, and there's more given him than there used to be. And he's managed to uh, have that give without it lessening his ability to win games, which is, is remarkable, you know, but he's a much more uh, well-rounded guy than he was when he got to Tuscaloosa. True or false? He's your colleague in ten years or less. Ten years, I'd say true. Okay. Uh, well, I'd say yeah. Certainly, he, he'll be at ESPN. I, I don't you know. Who knows where I'll be? But you know, you know he, he'll be there. I hope I'm there. You better but, be there. Uh, I, I will talk I, to him. That's how I feel. You but, better be but, there. You know, not my call. Well, yeah. I, maybe I'll have more reach in ten years because um, I'll be there in my late thirties, and I'll be like, no. Ivan stays. Sorry, folks. He's he's here. We need <laughs> Ivan and Saban. They're ready. We got to keep them together. So yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think you know Nick is uh, at this point. He is energized completely. Um, you know, he turned sixty nine on this Halloween. Uh, I don't sense any uh, you know, wear and tear on him. Uh, you know. But I, I wouldn't, you know, how far do you take that into the future? Who knows? Yeah, um, I I don't know. It He's got a good gig. Um, and I think he's got some less yes. stress than uh, Gus does. And the dichotomy between his wife and Gus's wife is always interesting to me because they are <laughs> uh, very different people from what I can tell. Um, just my from interviews and what I've seen. Um, and also just the all-time great interview from... Uh, Chrissy Malzahn uh, from years ago that made the rounds. That was just 
one of one of my favorites, and I do go back to sometimes when I. <laughs> they're they're interesting times um ivan is there anything that we can check out from you on uh, espn.com or anywhere else this week well I, uh, my story uh is posting wednesday morning about uh the origins of football in the spring which go back to the beginnings of the game um uh that that will post wednesday and uh got some more stuff relating to mental health month that will drop later in the month. So keep looking. Awesome. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Um, don't be a stranger. If we have college ball back this fall, I'd love to have you back on and uh, keep talking ball with you, man. Well, I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And uh, let's hope we have it in the fall. There we go. Ivan, keep up the great work. Stay safe, sir. And I will talk to you soon. Okay, Chase. Thank you. Welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. We have a new guest out there in Colorado, the SID Associate AD. He has a lot of titles that I want to ask him about, but it's David Platty of the University of Colorado. David, good afternoon. How are you? Uh, good, Chase. Uh, you know, titles are usually given out when they don't get raises, depending on one year. So that's why they accumulate through the years. <laughs> <laughs> um, my dad would probably have some some uh, some similar thoughts um, to that to that point. So, how would you describe your current job at Colorado? You mean the normal day to day, or the one with the virus going on? The day, the normal day to day. Let's just pretend the virus is not uh, ransacking everywhere across this country now. Let's let's keep the virus out of this podcast. No virus on this no. podcast. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, you know, May, you'd be wrapping up the year. Uh, you know, we don't have football or, or, excuse me, we don't have baseball or softball in Colorado. So at this point in May, uh, we'd really only have four sports that would still be active uh, across the two golfs and track and field. Uh, tennis would be done. Uh, back 12 championships from April. So we'd be while simultaneously wrapping up the year for those sports. You know, starting work on media guides, uh, updating bios, updating the website, the normal things you would have. May is actually one of our months that were, I wouldn't say it's a totally down month, but it's probably one of the easier ones for us when, uh, like I say, when you don't have two sports like uh, baseball or softball. How does your relationship with uh, the AD Rick George work? Uh, do y'all work hand in hand? Do y'all bounce stuff off of each other? What is that like in the yeah. administration? Uh, could you say that again? You're actually coming in and out, Chase. Oh, sorry about that. Um, so I was wondering, like, what is your re- working relationship like with Rick George? Uh, very good. You know, I knew Rick the first time when he was here back when he was Bill McCartney's director of recruiting and then football operations for five years between 1987 and 92. So we had a previous relationship. Uh, you know, probably one of the better athletic directors we've ever had, and we've had pretty good ones to begin with. So he's got a very good business acumen and a very working with the student athletes and the coaches. Um, when how much has like Colorado changed? Because you've been at Colorado for a while now. Like, how much has it changed as a 
um, as a program, uh, an athletic program since you've been there? What have you seen that's changed a lot over the years? Well, I've been here 42 years now, which is about 70% of my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we, and we, we've all been saying now with this virus going on, we've seen it all. You know, you thought you've seen it all, and then this comes along. So no one's bad to deal with anything like this. But uh, I think the changes here are probably similar to other places. You know, when I got here in 1978, you know, the facilities were what they were, and they were pretty similar everywhere. And then the facilities armor across the country. And, you know, you could build the best thing going, like we did Dow Ward Center back in 19. It was the state of the art, the most updated, the most beautiful thing going. And six months later, something else comes along. So uh, you make improvements to your stadium, make improvements to your track, your basketball arena. You come back and you add suites to your stadium. You build new administrative or football offices. And we did 2016. So, uh, you know, we've probably got some of the best state-of-the-art facilities right now, some of the best locker rooms and facilities for student-athletes, but that's ever-evolving. So, you know, aside from the, the facility component over the last 40 years, you've, you know, you've really seen, I think when I got here, the enrollment in the school is around 17,000. That's doubled. So a lot more buildings have uh, spurted up on campus. Um, you know, the town has grown a little fairly still uh, comfy or cozy, if you want to say it. But uh, I think those are probably the biggest changes that I've seen as far as school goes. What was the hardest part about leaving the Big 12 for the Pac-12? You know, it's actually really leaving the Big 8 for the Big 12, mostly in Hmm. retrospect. Because in those were the days, I think there were almost twice as many conferences own little eight or ten team conferences and then as the conferences start expanding into 12 and now 14 you know you don't see the people you really work with uh, a lot on more of a rotation basis so when we went to the big 12 you know we started seeing the people in the old big eight less and less and then we went to the pac 12 uh you know you miss some of your older rivalries mm-hmm. you know the nebraska's the oklahoma's iowa states so really all the old big eight ones can't say we really we didn't have that big a tradition with them. So when we made the move to Pac-12, you know, the real reason was, and everybody likes to say that the four teams left were fleeing Texas. Well, that didn't apply to us at all. Yeah. Our alumni base had really shifted. When we joined the Big Seven back in 1948, we started to get most of our out-of-state students from the Midwest. Now, you know, 70 years later, most of our alumni and our our out-of-state students come from the West Coast. So it really improved fundraising when we started. Our donors out West on a much more frequent basis. Huh. I hadn't, I had not considered that. Um, Who do you think is the most likely new Nebraska for Colorado in the PAC 12? Is there one team in particular that you could see um, if y'all are in the PAC 12 for the long haul that you could develop some kind of long-term rivalry with? You know, it kind of varies by sport. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in basketball right now, it's Arizona and Oregon. You know, in football, because we want to get the California recruits, since we recruit just California heavy, we'd like to, uh, you know, beat UCLA and USC. Uh, however, we're 0-13 all time against USC, so it <laughs> hasn't been much of a rivalry from their end. Well, I mean, they're down um, right now. Never say never. 
No, that's true. Uh, you know, we had a we've had a rivalry with Utah through the years. Actually, it was the rivalry. That was my pick. That's who I wanted to Bad. say, and I didn't know if that was off base, but I could see the Utah. No, the, yeah. Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference, and then in the old Skyline Conference, and we played them still 13 years into the when we went into the Big Seven, and you know we're very good rivals in skiing. And um, Denver's a rivalry in some sports, soccer and lacrosse, for example. And then Colorado State still, you know, if you really had to pinpoint our top rival, it's still probably in state with Colorado State. Really? Okay. All right. Um, in your estimation and based on what you're hearing, could there be, because it's something that's been thrown around too in the last couple weeks, so I guess this is the only Corona-related question I will ask you. Um, <laughs> okay. Could there be a Pac-12 season I mean, excuse me, could there be a college football season without the Pac-12? Like if Colorado, I mean, if California just doesn't allow their universities to come back and everything else, but the SEC is back, they do their own season, Pac-12 doesn't. Is that a possibility? Is there a chance that college football comes back for some universities, but not all, perhaps the teams in the Big 12? Is that something that you all been talking about and have thought about? Well, there seems to be an infinite number of scenarios out there, to be honest. And yeah. I don't think uh, college football will offer one one for all. I think if a league can come back, they will. So if the SEC can play and nobody else could, they would go ahead and do it. I think the tougher question is what if the California schools couldn't play, but the other eight schools could. Yeah. And that could apply to any conference. You know, if you don't have 100% uh, reopening by... Well, that conference still go on and play, and you know I think they've had some preliminary discussions if that should happen, probably across the country. But certainly, no decisions have been made. They're not rushing to do anything. It's still only May fifth, and you know the season. I think uh, really we have to have these answers probably by the end of June, figuring out when to bring players back for a period of what everybody believes to be about six weeks for them to condition. eight-week window to get the athletes back in town and really for all the fall sports matches for football before uh, we can make any decision or how we will proceed in the fall. So replacing um, Mel Tucker at the time that you had to replace Mel Tucker was a difficult, unfortunate circumstance. And the Colorado coaching search was an interesting one, I think, from outside observers because there were internal candidates that were interesting. There were external candidates that were interesting. But I don't think anyone had Carl Doral on their list of like, this guy's probably going to get the Colorado job. What made Carl stand out for um, the Colorado administration? Well, first of all, a lot of people won't remember this, but we've dealt with this before where we had a coach leave after signing day. And it was even worse. He left after spring football. It was back in 1982 when Chuck Fairbanks left to go coach the New Jersey Generals in the fledgling United States Football League. So we were hunting for a coach in 1982 in the month of June. So Not by uh, retrospect, you know, this was only February. But, uh, you know, it still was a tough time. Most staffs were set. Obviously, they did have a lot of interest. There were a lot of a few current head coaches that were interested, but you know a lot of coordinators, a lot of coaches that were out of business or out of the business for a year or two. Some interest on the pro level, but you know we had targeted a few people on our list, and one of the people we were targeting was Eric Bieniemy with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he was a former buff, former assistant here, 
And Carl and Eric are good friends, so Carl never put his hat in the ring or put his name out there in deference to Eric because he was pulling for Eric to get the job or thought Eric would get the job. So when that didn't happen, uh, our search committee of two, which was really uh, Rick George and his uh, football operations uh, or football sports supervisor, Lance Carl, uh, they thought of Carl, and I'm not sure what triggered them as far as Carl was concerned. But, uh, you know, I had seen that Carl was literally promoted to assistant head coach for the Dolphins, I think, the Thursday before we hired him on that Saturday. It was just right before that. So I remember reading that, and I go, oh, Carl, he would have been a good choice. <laughs> Didn't even put two and two together that at the same time we were talking to him. And the interesting thing was he was coming to Boulder where they have built a forever house when they were when he's done with football. So they had a home here anyway. Wow. And, uh, Lance got Carl on the phone and seeing he'd be interested in interviewing. And he said, well, we're going to be in Boulder tonight. I'm flying there anyway. So that's how that was all born. But, um, you know, so uh, Rick and uh, Lance at some point realized Carl was out there. And Carl had been here in two different assistant coaching stints before. First under Bill McCartney back in 92, 93. And then Rick Neuheisel brought him in as our offensive coordinator in 95. And he was here for four years before he went with Rick up to Washington. Interesting. So what sold uh, Rick and uh, Lance on Carl? What made him the right choice over the other candidates? If you look at Carl's resume, he's got really extensive experience in really all phases of what you're looking for. And, you know, one of the current phrases that's out there is, did somebody check all of the boxes? And as Mel did with us, so did Carl. And, you know, his experience of being in Boulder, he knew what the school is like academically, what it takes to recruit here. Uh, he's uh, obviously uh, worked with a lot of uh, big name players, not only in our history, but once he went to the pros, when he was going from team to team in the NFL, as they will have have had it. So I think it was a whole package. And then, of course, uh, you know, athletic directors, they have to be sold on what coaches have for vision for your program. And Carl was here really during our period of 19, uh, really 1988 to 2001. Sands maybe one year in there, there was a losing season. He was here during our biggest heyday in our modern times. So he knows what it takes to win here and what it was like to win here. It seems like looking back, I mean, when Mel Tucker was first hired, it was something like, oh, it just, it doesn't seem like he's someone who's going to be at Colorado for like 10 years. He's not going to be like a long term. You see certain coaches like Kyle Whittingham. It's going to be hard to see him ever leaving Utah, but certain coaches right. are like, this is probably not the, the long haul. This is not the dream job for them. Carl, it seems like there's a difference there. Maybe even Eric too, before um, he decided to stay with the chiefs. But um, do you get the sense that he is someone that wants to be in Colorado and Boulder for the long term? Cause he said he lives there and he already had a lot of connections to the university. Is that something that's appealing for ADs and schools where it's like, we don't have to go through this process every three to five years because this coach is ready to move on to his next thing and um with carl that this is something that he would be comfortable with long term well i don't think any athletic director really looks at their job in any coaching position as a stepping stone for another school yeah. obviously that might be the case at some places but you know we've never looked at our positions as being a stepping stone and mel we never had that impression from mel either we were actually talking about our football schedules in the early 2030s and he really? wanted to play certain teams and he thought he would be here that long. So, uh, we had never had any indication really that Mel was interested in any other job until what happened to Michigan state. And, you know, they backed up the uh, Brinks armor truck and 
brought him a lot of money for him and his staff. And, you know, you can't blame him for doing that. It's just the timing and the way it went down that we weren't happy with. But so be it. Uh, Mel's a good man. He's a good coach. He'll probably do well at Michigan State once he gets things rolling there. Carl, on the other hand, is, you know, the home built here, and this is where he wants to be. This is one of his dream jobs. And at this point, I would think, uh, or he's actually said, he would like this to be his last job. Really? So he he will hopefully be here for whether that's 10 or 15 years when he decides to hang up the ropes of his coaching career. Is this staff that he has around him, because some of it's um, people that uh, were here under Mel and were here before Mel with McIntyre. Um, do you like this? Is there going to be more changes on the staff under, or is this something that um, you think is going to work, this diversity and just how long certain um, people have been here? Like the the wide receiver coach, Co-OC, who I'm, I always get his last name wrong when I pronounce it. Hey, yes, who's been there, and he was also um, reportedly in the running. But um, do you think all of these guys are going to mesh well together, um, uh, just coming from where they're coming from? All, all indications are they already have, and that's really despite the fact they haven't been able to meet that much in person right. yet. But they've been doing a lot on, you know, whoever invented Zoom is making a lot of money, obviously. And <laughs> yeah. Everybody around the country is on Zoom. So, uh, you know, they've bonded that way. And it's not only his assistant coaching staff, he has put together a really strong support staff because I've been writing their bios. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you jump on our website and read most of those, he's really got some talent and, and some really heavily. Uh, fortified, how should I say, heavily experienced people in both college and pro football that are filling the quality control positions and the player personnel type positions. So it's a very, very strong staff from top to bottom. And, you know, that might not have been the case so much under Mel because he brought in a lot of, I wouldn't say, you know, rookies, but people that really hadn't been as experienced as who Carl has brought in. So, he has done a really good job of fortifying the staff from top to bottom with experienced people. What are your 2020 expectations for the team? That we play games. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're going to play 12, a full schedule. You're going to play eight it's conference games. You're going to play six in the fall, six in the spring. So, you know, that's the $64,000 question right now is how many games you're going to play. But, you know, we were five and seven last year, and could have just as easily been eight and four. You had a brutal schedule uh, last year. Like your schedule, but, uh, I remember before the season talking to one of my buddies about it, and just how unfortunate that was a year one uh, coaching situation for Mel. Just the schedule, it was it was brutal. Well, this year is not much easier. No, <laughs> if easier at all. I mean, really, you used to swap out uh, Texas A and M for Nebraska and Fresno State for Air Force. So, you know, and then and Nebraska, or Texas Stadium is on the road. CSU is actually on the road and not in Denver. So you, you lose a neutral site to a road game and then swap out the other two. And then the uh, the same Pac-12 opponents just flopped sites. So, uh, you know, the goal, you know, we just want to get back into the bowl cycle on a consistent basis because we've only been to one bowl since 2007 season. Which seems so, uh, we'd me. like to get back to the point where we're like winning. It. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't. But we want to get back to the point where we're winning at least becoming bowl eligible every year and then back to where we were in the late 80s where we started just taking those steps up to being a regular eight-win team, then a 10-win team, and then in the hunt for the conference championship, and then for that long period, a stretch of seven years, where we were a contender for the national championship. So, you know, that's going to take time. No one's thinking it's going to happen this year. But, you know, I think you can think of any year, your goal is to at least become bowl eligible and get those extra practices and play around Christmas. 
What would one quirk about AD Rick George that you know that the the Buffalo fans would find funny or interesting about him? <laughs> one quirk? Yes. Something about uh, Rick George. He had football injuries, so his pinkies kind of extend out further than most people. Really? That's a quirk. Okay. Quirk from his football playing days with his hand injury. Uh, I don't think he has any quirks. He's, he's basically a really good guy, a hard worker. He, you know, he loves baseball. He loves golf. He's a bogey golfer, better, you know, shoots in the eighties. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Longer pink. He's not, he's not a big music fan. I, you know, I'm not a big I music am. fan. I've been to 382 concerts. I sing in my office and they all laugh at me. <laughs> 382. Okay. Yeah. I'm I a think the number of concerts I've been on and, and on one hand. So I think I share more of a Rick perspective there. Um, well, this is going to be hard with Corona and everything and no concerts for a while. This could be another problematic part of things. Um, yes, I had tickets to the Eagles and they had to cancel their tour. So. <laughs> brutal. And you're, you have Red Rocks out there in Colorado, all kinds of great venues. Oh, man. The uh, best concert venue in the world. <laughs> that's, uh, that's brutal. Um, favorite Colorado game that you've watched in person in the 43 years uh, that you've been in Colorado? <sighs> There are different ones for different reasons. You know, it's hard to top the, uh, you know, when we beat Notre Dame to win the national title, when we beat Nebraska 62-36. I was going to say, the Nebraska game, I remember where I was. I remember being in my living room on a, watching on ABC with Jackson calling the game and Chris Brown running all over the... Like, I, it's weird that I remember that as vividly as I do. But for whatever reason, I remember that game and that beat down extremely vividly it's yeah. it's still actually wild. that was it was a uh, brent musburger and gary danielson or brent musburger what yeah, yeah what you're thinking of is a game i'm going to divert to of all of them is going back to the miracle of michigan when keith jackson did call it okay so just being there in presence and seeing something like that happen and how it unfolded and you know how we literally were down 12 you know if instant replay existed today the catch never would happen because they ruled Cordell fumbled at the one yard line and gave the ball to Michigan when it was twenty six fourteen and it sure looked like the ball had busted over the plane, so it would have been a touchdown. But then we came back and drove eighty yards and Rashawn Salam scored to make it twenty six twenty one and then, you know, the last two plays where we gained eighty five yards in forty seconds or fourteen seconds. So, you know, to put almost two hundred and fifty yards on a Michigan defense in the last seven minutes of the game was something to see to begin with. But uh, just to see the way the catch game ended, uh, that you know, that's obviously at the top of the list. You know, the other games that stand out for what they were: the fifth down game, the uh, beating Notre Dame in the uh, Fiesta Bowl for McCartney's final send-off, followed by New Heisel's first game in Wisconsin when we had lost. Uh, Ten players in the NFL, seven in the first seventy-one picks back in the '95 draft, and we go on the road and beat Wisconsin forty-three to seven up in Madison. That was pretty special. So, but you know, a lot of special games for different reasons throughout the years because I've seen almost five hundred of them now. Last question, and we'll wrap up here. Um, I'm a big Lavishka Chenault guy. He was someone that I very much enjoyed watching play college football. Um, unfortunately, injuries derailed. A lot of uh, fun times with him, but he was just this weird wrecking ball that I didn't understand how he got open and how he came down with balls that he did. It just he was he was great, and I'm sure Steven Montez is going to miss throwing him the ball and everything else. But um, in your estimation, 
How do you think LaVishka Chenault will translate to the NFL? And also, what are you going to miss about watching him on Saturdays? I say LaVishka Chenault picked where he was, is going to wind up being the steal of the draft. He got a bad rap for injuries, but the first one was sort of a turf toe because he was stepped on funny at USC as a freshman year. So that's not uh, something that uh, you know normally happens. Usually it's some kind of weird thing that happens at the bottom of, of a tackle pile. And then he always had kind of like a chronic shoulder thing that he consistently played through and you never even knew he was hurt. He's a tough kid. And then the groin, uh, the core injury is very, very rare and the same kind of deal as how you injure that. And he's back 100% from that. We were very careful not to... Uh, make that injury worse last year, which is why he wasn't in for as many plays as he was. Otherwise, he would have probably posted similar numbers that he did a sophomore here. So I see LaVisca, you know, and Gardner Minshew is going to be throwing to him. I see those two becoming a very, uh, very, very dangerous one-two combination because he does have a knack to get open. He often has to be gang tackled. One person can't bring him down. You know, he uh, he ran a slow time at the combine because of the core injury. Well, the slow time with a groin injury, core injury area at four five eight. I think most people would be happy to run anything sub five with that kind of injury. So he's going to come back and be in his normal four three nine range once he's fully healthy out there. And I think he will be the steal of the draft. And just missing the things he could do anytime he touched the ball. I mean, I've never seen a guy had 196 touches and earned like 107 first downs. You know, over 50% of the time he earned a first down. Uh, they'll probably use him as a return man to a degree. I mean, the only the only two returns he had, he had one punt return and one kickoff return here. <clears throat> and the punt return was on a fumble recovery that he ran in for a touchdown. <laughs> uh, he, had, he had 109 yards on just two returns because that's his vision. That's how he sees the field. So... Uh, I'll just miss thing every time he gets the ball. What is he going to do with it now? He was, it was just someone that like I had to tell friends. I'm like, no, 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 no. You've got to watch this guy. Like, um, if you guys had a weekday night game and just be like, oh, no, 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 no. You got to watch for just Chenault. Like you've got to, this guy, I just, I don't understand. Like he's going to get 12 targets and they're going to be great. Um, I promise this dude is just, he's incredible to watch. Um, so I, I and his brother is, his brother is here and he's actually a better receiver really? in the sense that he's a better ball catcher, which is hard to imagine seeing when this can make some of the plays he made, but, uh, you don't get, uh, you don't get a player with the vision that Vanisca, Vanisca has. He maybe get somebody like that once every 10 years, you know, Salam had that vision when he was running the ball. Cliff Branch had that vision back in the seventies when, you know, returner and wide receiver for us. So he, I think any team can go through their history and they could probably find one guy every 10 or 12 years that has that spectacular vision that just totally adds to all his other physical skills. Uh, I lied. I had one more quick thing. One more quick thing. Sure. Who is the quarterback for the Colorado Buffaloes this fall? We have no idea. (laughs) Steven Montez signed as a uh, a agent with the uh, Redskins. So it'll be between Tyler Lytle uh, Sam Neuer returned, and then a freshman out of Texas, Brendan Rice, or excuse me, Brendan Lewis. So um, it's going to be one of those three. We just don't know which, but we haven't had a spring practice to even see any of them. So hopefully uh, when we do come back, they'll incidentally allow some extra practices for the teams that uh, weren't able to either start or finish spring ball. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, this has been great. Very informative. I appreciate the time, David. This has been a lot of fun. Um, is there anything you would like to um, plug before we get out of here? 
plug <laughs> yeah plug man see you at bluffs.com like why people should go to yeah, colorado go. why people should visit boulder when things are calmed down my family loves colorado they might retire there there's all kinds of opportunities like you never know which recruit is because there are college recruits that listen to this podcast and there's an opportunity here to sell the buffs right now well one thing i could say is that it's sold most recruits when they've come here is when you and if you've done it before when you drive over the Mesa coming into Boulder Valley and you see the campus standing out because the architecture is the same, the uh, the roofing, the, uh, sh- the tiles they use are all the same. It just stands out. The sun listens on them. A lot of recruits are sold just when they make that drive over the Mesa coming down into Boulder. So if uh, it's one of the coolest sites you'll see driving in any town around. So I would say uh, even if you're not a – College football fan here in Colorado, make the drive into Boulder just for that aspect alone. Do it. Go do it. That would be great. All right. Well, good luck this season, sir. If there is a season, I hope there is a season. And stay safe, stay well. And, um, yeah, we'll have to check back in soon when uh, Carl Doral's raising some Pac-12 championships. Gotta hope. (laughs) Thanks, Chase. Appreciate it. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, It helps the show continue to grow, and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, You can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. For as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. You could go to ChaseThomasPodcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need, um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.